does mean that we will not go into all the minute details of every single uh, thing. So if there's something that seems to get skipped over that you have questions about, then um, please come ask whoever's preaching on any particular given morning. I will let you know as a little bit of a a pre-warning, we are not going to spend a huge deal of time in the genealogies. So if you're expecting a wonderful, big, focused, detailed thing out of all those names, and congratulations, Samuel, for having a crack at them all. Um, I actually make very few references to it, so I didn't really need to learn all the, the tricky names. So let's open up in prayers as we trust God and depend upon God uh, for this time to be of worthwhile for all of us. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you particularly for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ to deal with our sin and offer salvation. Uh, Lord, we don't desire just to have been saved at one point in our life. We desire that we uh, might do what you uh, planned even before the creation of the world to do, uh, that you would call the people to yourself, that you might change us to become more like Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that studying your word or even having it explained in and of itself is of very little merit unless your spirit is at work, unless we are prepared and ready to to receive and hear your living and active word. Lord, I'm just a man broken in so many ways, very limited in my abilities in many ways. If we pray for the that your spirit would be work through me, uh, that what you would want us to hear and what you would want us to respond to and apply would take place in this building this morning. So we entrust ourselves to you to work through your word for our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as a parent of of two kids, you always think, I don't know how to do this stuff. How do you do all this parenting stuff? Back at home, I've got a whole pile of resources Books, DVDs on parenting stuff, and you always think, yeah, there's some good things in some, there's some good things in others. There's one bit of advice that's in every single one of them. And that bit of, oh, there's probably multiple things that are in every single one of them, but one in particular that's in every single one of them is, don't promise your kids something that you can't do. In other words, don't say you are or aren't going to do something if you actually can't follow through on it. To give you an example, I shouldn't say to Miller, that's our little two-year-old for those visiting, if you don't clean up your toys, I'm going to take you to a St Kilda game at Etihad Stadium, see I've got St Kilda in there, <laughs> in front of 40,000 people right in the middle of the field, I'm going to pull your pants down and smack your bottom and everyone's going to point at you and laugh. I can't promise that. You can't just go to a major sporting event and say, excuse me, can I, it's okay, I promised my kid that if she didn't clean up her toys, uh, that we'd do this in the middle of the stage. They're not going to let you do that, plus I'm going to be in trouble for uh, spanking a child on national television as well. You can't promise things that you're not going to follow through on. And that's not just negative things like if you don't clean up your toys. That's also things that you promise that you will do. Now, as parents and as kids which all of us, all of you were kids at one point, if you don't remember, at some point in your life, you've turned in frustration to mum and dad and said, but you promised you were going to do this. Some of you might very strongly remember that because it might have been something really exciting. You were really disappointed that it didn't happen. 
In other words, kids understand at a very basic level, if you say you're going to do it, they expect that you will do it. If kids automatically think that us as faulty, broken parents will do everything we say we're going to do, if they think that's what how things should be, without someone teaching that, that's just what they think it's how things should work, how much more should we as God's children have absolute confidence that when God says he's going to do something that he actually will? We're up to now the seventh sermon in in our series of Exodus. There's a total of 21, so by the end of today, we will be one-third of our way through the book, or not through the book, one-third of the way through our preaching series. Now, I hope you've enjoyed the series, like I've enjoyed preaching the parts that we have done so far, but I don't just hope that you've enjoyed it, because you can enjoy all sorts of things. But I hope you've been challenged by it. I hope you've been encouraged by it. I hope that you've seen something of the glory of God as we've seen the way he's interacted in this world in which we live in a way that has sort of captured your heart to love him and see him more clearly. But if you're visiting or if you've missed many, to give you a bit of a broad picture of what's happened up until this point in time, the Israelites are in the land of Egypt and most of the story so far has been between two competing claims to be the ultimate authority between the almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who believes he is the the ultimate authority in all things. Now, the very first Pharaoh that we came across was worried that the Israelites were growing in numbers. And so he threw everything at it to try and to dwindle that and particularly to reduce their male population that they wouldn't form an army. But the problem was... Back in Genesis, God had promised to Jacob saying, do not be afraid to go down into Egypt because there I will make you into a great nation. He would promised to the forefathers, to Abraham, that your descendants will be many, as numerous as the, the stars of the sky. So as the Pharaoh who claims to be a great authority seeks to undo what God has promised he will do, we have seen that God's promises always come to fruition, even when the highest human leader in the world tries to oppose them. But that doesn't mean that things were always easy going for them. Like we've seen throughout the series that they were being treated ruthlessly as slaves. And right there in the middle of that time when the, when the Pharaoh wanted all the, the Hebrew boys to be killed when they're born, Moses is born. And again, through a display of God, who is the ultimate authority, the ultimate power, not only is Moses sustained, but he ends up, in a sort of a sense of humor way, actually gets raised in Pharaoh's household. But a time comes in his life where he goes out to see his own people, to see how they are going. And he sees the ways in which they are being treated ruthlessly as slaves. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen tells us that Moses thought that by killing the, the, um, the Egyptian slave driver who was beating on one of the Hebrew, Hebrew workers, he thought that he was going to be seen as their deliverer by killing him. Yet the people rejected Moses. They didn't want anything to do with him. Not only was he rejected by the Israelites, but as a result of this, he's on the run for the Egyptians because they want him dead for killing the Egyptian slave driver as well. In chapter 3, we see God appear to Moses in the burning bush 
Not only does he reveal that he has seen their affliction and that he's remembered his covenant, a covenant in which he'd promised to the forefathers that after 400 years in the land of Egypt that he would come down and he would deliver them and make them a people for, for his own self. But Moses just gives every single excuse in the book. Particularly, I'm not your man. I can't speak. You can't expect me to go speak before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And it seems God gives a little concession. He lets Aaron, his brother, be the one who does the speaking part, but he doesn't change his plan and says, you're my man. You're the one who I'm working through. You're my appointed deliverer. And by the end of chapter 4, things were looking reasonably good. After Moses has worried so much, am I the person to do this task? As they go, as God had told them to, to the Israelite people, and he goes to the, to the elders and before all of the people, says, God has seen your affliction and he is going to raise up a deliverer and you are going to be delivered out of the hand of Egypt. And the people responded, we saw at the end of chapter 4, they worshipped God. Not because they'd seen the deliverance, but they worshipped because they believed that Moses and Aaron were God's appointed deliverers and that this thing was going to take place. So they worshipped in faith that this was going to happen. But then last week, we see Moses and Aaron do come before Pharaoh. Say, let my people go. And just as God had told them beforehand, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will not let them go. But it went further than that. Not only did he not let them go, things actually went from bad to worse. But that wasn't the most unattractive side of things. It wasn't just so much that things got worse. The worst thing that happened in the passage last week is when things got worse, the Israelite people did not turn to Moses or to God to receive their deliverance. They turned to Pharaoh. And the point that we sort of lingered on last week was that in trouble, in our difficult times, our first response is not always the thing we need most. The silly example we gave is when you're driving along and you've got a drink between your legs and you think you're going to crash, the first thing you do is you protect your drink so you don't spill it on the floor rather than putting your foot on the brakes. Now we laugh because we know that's stupid. But we do things like that. And so what I challenge us to think about last week is where do we turn in times of travel? Because the reality is what we truly believe is most able to help us and most satisfying in that time will be demonstrated by what we first turn to. And sadly, so often, that thing that we first turn to is like trying to grab our drink so it doesn't spill on the floor when we're going to crash. Things that don't help, things that we think we need but don't address the situation aren't our most able and ready-needed help that we need to lock in our mind that God is the one who is a deliverer. God is the one to whom we are to turn to. As we finished last week, we saw the Israelites. First, they blame Pharaoh. Then they come out and say to Moses, Moses, you've done this. You've made us a stench in the sight of the Egyptians and you have raised the sword against us. So it's a big change, wasn't it? From the end of chapter 4, Accepting that Moses and Aaron are the people who are going to deliver them out of Egypt. When things go downhill, they say, you have done this. 
And I actually say, God, may God judge you for doing this. So today we're going to look at how do Moses and Aaron respond to this and also to God's call to go before Pharaoh again when the first time worked out pretty poorly. So first, looking at verses 22 to 23, dealing with disappointment of chapter 5, this is. Now, we've seen what the Israelite foreman thought. They weren't real impressed. They, they said, you've made us a stench. You've basically given us a death sentence. Now, who likes criticism? Is there any weirdos who actually like criticism? Criticism's hard to take at any time. But where it's the hardest is, Imagine getting criticism when you've done the right thing. Like up until this point in time, Moses and Aaron have done exactly what God has called them to do, yet they've been told, having their own people call upon them, criticise them, say, may God judge you, may God curse you. It wasn't appreciated. You'd think God's people would be appreciative when God's appointed leaders do the things God calls them to but they were far from appreciating. I remember very vividly when I was doing a subject at Bible College on leadership, I had to interview ministers, and I, was, I had to ask a question, what is the one piece of wisdom you wish someone told you before you got into ministry? Both of them first words were, do not presume that just because you are working in an environment with Christians that they're going to treat you better than the secular workplace. Like I, sound a bit, I was a bit shocked when I heard that. But I have seen so many people in Christian ministry doing good, faithful work, yet receiving harsh and even really difficult treatment from some of God's own people. I've heard some absolute horror stories in that regard. But you've got to think, for Moses and Aaron, it's got to be discouraging, doesn't it? You've done the right thing, and all the people are against you. But when you're in that position where you're doing the right thing by God, it brings you down to that question and it asks you that question. Who do I genuinely deep down live to please? Is my life defined by whether or not God is pleased with me, whether I'm doing the right thing in his sight, or do I want to do what is pleasing in the sight of my peers? Or simply put, do I want to do what is pleasing to the one who love me enough, who died for my sins, or do I live for the approval and for the pleasure of my fellow sinful people? So how do Moses and Aaron respond? Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. That's, that's a pretty harsh words for a bloke who reckons he, you know, he hasn't, hasn't got good enough words to go before Pharaoh to put forward a case. He's put a pretty strong case before Almighty God, hasn't he? And some pretty strong accusations. Look at this, the flow of blame. You've got the foreman who first go to Pharaoh, then they go to Israel, then they go to Moses. Moses says, God, it's all your fault. Some of the accusations, you've done evil. That's a pretty big thing to, say, to come before God and say, you have done evil to these people. He says, you've sent the wrong person. You sent me, I told you not to. 
and finishes with, you have not delivered your people at all. So you've done evil. I told you not to send me and look what you've done. And you haven't made the slightest bit of progress of following through what you said you're going to do. It's almost like saying, God, you know, you really should have listened to me. I knew this all along. I told you not to send me, but you did it. What do you expect? Moses has got many things to say for a bloke who reckons he hasn't got much to say and, and hasn't got good s- skills with regards to speech. Although his words are very harsh and particularly misguided, there's one thing that is, can be commended in Moses' words. It says, in that time when everyone's turned against him, when things have gone from bad to worse, how did, how did chapter 6 begin? And Moses turned to the Lord. And he asked God some questions. They were some very harsh and confronting questions, but he asked God questions, why? Why this? This doesn't line up with how things should be. This doesn't line up with my understanding of who God is. Why? Should we ever question God? Is it, is it biblical? Are we allowed to question God when things don't make sense with our understanding of how, who our God is and the way things are working out? I'll put it to you. The answer is yes, with some provisos. It makes sense that when we're in circumstances, if we, things don't seem to line up with who we think God should be, the right person to direct those questions to isn't to complain to everyone else and say, oh, God didn't do this. God, why? I trust that you're good, but tell me why. Explain it to me. If you look through the Psalms, you'll see the psalmist writing, asking these questions time and time again. To give you just one example from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? They're big questions. Like things are taking a long time. It's like, how long do I have to put up with this? But do you know the way that psalm ends? It's only a few verses later, verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So yes, he asks questions of God. How? How's this going to work out? Why are you doing this? It's in the context of, but I trust that you are good. But I trust that you have dealt bountifully with me. Yet, I have these questions in the middle of this. How am I going to see and experience what I believe to be true of you? So yes, we can ask questions of God, but always in that context of a trust that he is working and doing all things for our good and for his glory. So how does God respond to these? They're pretty, pretty harsh questions that... Moses is directed at him. But this is the God who's revealed himself as slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't rebuke Moses for his words. What he does is he reminds him of what he's already told him before. To look at the very first verse, we see sort of like a big picture summary of what, of what he's promised he's going to do. The Lord says to Moses, Now you shall see what I'll do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So not only does it remind him that, you know, we're getting out of Egypt, 
But he says that it's going to be such a point that God is going to work that Pharaoh is going to send them out, not just let them go. These aren't new words if you compare it to what is um, said previously in chapter 3. If I put them there side by side, you see that strong connection between the idea that God is going to be working by his mighty hand. He's already said, Pharaoh's not going to let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And then afterwards he will let you go. It says there in chapter 3, verse 20, which literally translated as he will send you away. He's like, that. things haven't changed. This is what I've promised you before. Just because you're seeing things not work out the way you want it to doesn't mean the plan has changed. My promise hasn't changed in any way whatsoever. I am the same God who has hardened Pharaoh's heart. I am the same God who will also deliver you out of Egypt. So verses 2 to 8 of chapter 6, as God addresses Moses and Aaron and also God addresses the people of Israel through Moses and Aaron, He doesn't say anything here that he has not already said before. The thing they needed most to know wasn't an answer to all of their questions, but a reminder of what God has already promised. We're not going to go in detail, but in terms of the things that he's already said, and you see the references both in this chapter and also what's been said previously, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I am the God who entered into covenant with your forefathers, which included that you would possess the land of Canaan for yourselves. I've seen your affliction, and I have remembered my covenant to act, to save and deliver, and I will deliver you out of Egypt. There's nothing new here. These are things which God has already revealed himself to Moses in the book of Exodus, and some of those you'll see go right back to the covenant promises to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. But as God reminds him of what he said previously, it's not only to encourage Moses and Aaron, but it's also intended to, to be an encouragement to the people as, they, as he charges Moses to, to bring this message to the people of Israel. This is what I formally told you. This is the plan. It hasn't changed. Remember how that worked out last time? When these very same promises are brought before the people, end of chapter 4, they fell down and worshipped. But between that moment and now, Moses and Aaron have been before Pharaoh. Things went from bad to worse. Are the Israelites encouraged by the reminder that they've heard before that previously caused them to fall down and worship? Moses spoke thus to the people and they did not listen because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the very same news that they've heard before that caused them to fall down and worship God, now they don't want a bar of it. And it gives two reasons why they would not listen to the words of Moses. Firstly, because of their broken spirit. Now they had all their hopes up, their expectations, but for the first time when Moses and Aaron became before Pharaoh, things didn't work out the way they wanted to. They were crushed. They didn't want to go through that again. They were too shattered to, to, to trust and put their hope in that again. Now we see that happening all the time. Particularly people who get hurt in a church environment. They say, I'm never going to church again. I went to a church. Someone did or said something. I'm so hurt by it. I've got nothing to do with them ever again. And how often do we do that? We say, I tried something once. didn't work. I give up on God. 
Now, if you've been hurt in a church environment, do remember, church is made up of people. We're sinful. We do make mistakes. That's not a way of saying that we should, you should expect or should want these things to happen. But they do happen. We shouldn't give up on God because of God's people. And the second excuse they give, why they won't listen, is because of their harsh slavery. The very slavery itself is one of the reasons why they couldn't hear the word about deliverance. You might think, that sounds a bit weird. Shouldn't this be what they want to hear? But it's exactly the the same in regards to our salvation. It's because of the, the tight bonds of our slavery to Satan and to sin that we don't naturally hear and see the goodness of the good news. Unless God breaks those shackles of our tight slavery to sin and Satan, we do not see and savour and respond to the good news of the salvation and the deliverance that, that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So you can't imagine Moses and Aaron are really on their, their ultimate high in their ministry, are they? Things are going rotten. The people have said, may God curse you. They go out, tell them again. They don't want to listen to them. They must be thinking, woohoo, how good's ministry in God's, in God's kingdom? Imagine what the next thing they'd most like to hear. I don't think it's verse 11. In the middle of that discouragement, God speaks again to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people go out of his hand. Can't imagine he's overly excited by that. He's done it once. Not only did it not work out in a particularly nice way, things went worse, but even his own people turned on him as a result. So Moses goes back to his old ways. He can't help but think about himself, focuses on himself and goes, nah, I'm not your man. No good at speaking. If the people won't listen to me, why would, why would Pharaoh listen to me? We've said it time and time again. Whenever you view the world with a focus on yourself, you will always see brokenness and hopelessness. And that's what Moses is doing. He's thinking about his abilities, his capabilities. He's taking his focus on himself, whereas his focus should be on, on the God who has called and has given these promises. One thing you'll notice, though, God never actually responds to the excuses. He doesn't answer them. He answered them comprehensively back in chapters 3 and 4. All he does is repeat what he has already said. Because he doesn't need to answer them. It's not to say there's a problem with the promises made. They just need to believe that God has made his promises and they will come to pass. So he just repeats the same thing. Go before the king and tell him. Then just like you're watching your favourite TV show, then boom, out of the blue, ads. Spoil it right at the the most exciting moment. Here comes a genealogy in like an ad to, to ruin the story. Who loves a good genealogy? You know, your dream holidays to be sitting back on a beach with a big, thick book detailing all the genealogies in the Bible, just kicking back. Oh, life doesn't get any better, does it? There probably is a book like that. I haven't looked for one. But Google it when you get home. Now, sometimes when you see a genealogy, they, they automatically make sense. Why are they there? Like, particularly, they're often there to introduce a significant character 
So, for example, in Matthew chapter 1, we, we understand it makes sense that it goes before introducing Jesus to, to show his lineage, particularly to a uh, written to a Jewish audience, to make sense, to make the connection back to, to David and so on. But this one just in the middle of the story. Just gets chucked in there. There's got to be a reason. God does stuff for a reason. And more than just being a list of names, there seems to be three key emphases that are in there. One is that this genealogy is focusing on Aaron. Now, you'll expect there'll be some similar connections between Moses and Aaron. After all, they are brothers. But the focus is specifically upon Aaron because even his own wife gets a mention in there. Moses' wife doesn't get a mention. There is a strong connection showing how Aaron and his lineage goes right back to the forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And there is a strong focus on the idea that of the descendants of Levi, the priestly line. Matter of fact, it goes all the way from Levi through Aaron all the way ahead to Phinehas. Now Phinehas was a was a a priest that was highly respected amongst the amongst the Israelite people, particularly in Numbers chapter twenty five, when he acts in such a way that, that turns away God's wrath from the people. Um, you can read Numbers 25 later. I don't suggest it's good story time reading with your kids at night. Um, but God makes a covenant with peace um, with Phinehas during that as a result of, of his actions. So possibly what tr- God's trying to highlight here is all the way from, from Levi all the way through to Phinehas, God has shown his covenant faithfulness to the line of Levi, which includes Aaron. Now the big question you might want to ask here is, so what? Why, why the focus on Aaron? I mean, already back in chapter 3, we already have a very strong confirmation of, of Moses being God's chosen deliverer. And people could be tempted to ask us, what's Aaron got to do with this? Where does he fit in? And I think this is uh, being placed here uh, to validate Aaron and his role um, in, the, in the, the deliverance of it, the Israelites from Egypt. And I think the writer knows he's sort of messed up the flow of the story because the verses 28 to 30 are pretty much a repeat of 10 to 13. It's like, the, okay, you know, like when you watch a reality TV show and then the first 30 seconds is a repeat and all the stuff that happened before, which if you record, it's great because you can skip over that junk stuff. So there it goes back, yep, we've told you, go before Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Now there's so much in common here between... Uh, this call to go forwards towards Pharaoh, as what we've seen in previous occasions, that sometimes people think this is the same thing, just being told a second time around. But there's some obvious differences that this actually is a call to go before Pharaoh to say, let the people go a second time. Firstly, it's clearly in Exodus chapter 3, Moses, God is speaking to Moses on Mount Horeb. Now this is being spoken to Moses and Aaron in Egypt. But one of the significant differences is Moses' role. Note back in chapter 4, verse 16. Uh, this is speaking of Aaron. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be God to him. Now, put as in square brackets because it's actually not in the original language. It basically says, you shall be God to Aaron. So he's saying, Moses, you shall be God to Aaron. But now in chapter 7... The Lord says to Moses, see, I've made you God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now, I can understand why people put like or as in their translations because you don't want to give the impression that Moses is God or Moses is a deity of some form. 
But what he's saying is that you are the instrument who God is working through. You are representing God to Aaron in chapter 4 and you are representing everything that God wants to be to Pharaoh in chapter 7. So there's a, there's a degree of confidence being given there. When you stand before Pharaoh, let it be known, I have made you God in the presence of Pharaoh. Now, while that might seem encouraging, until you get another warning, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I'll lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts of people by the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Imagine hearing that. You must think, oh, great. Not only are you calling me to do something that, that weren't so poorly before, you're calling me to do it again and you're telling me that you're going to harden his heart again and he's not going to listen to me. How would you do that? Now, God calls you to do something and tells you there's pretty much not going to be an outcome for doing it. What's going to be your natural response? Sometimes we might ask the obvious question is, why does God keep doing this? Why would God ask someone to do something if he says it's not going to actually do anything? And I think what God's trying to do is to show that Moses isn't their deliverer. Moses cannot deliver a people. I think if if the first time Moses went before Pharaoh and he said, yep, off you go, people could be tempted to think, Moses saved us. I think God wants to be very clear. God is the God who saves and delivers his people. So not only is it for the Israelites that they can see that it is God who saves, but it is also for the benefit of the Egyptians. So that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people out of Israel from amongst them. He wants it to be unmistakable. The Israelites know that God has saved them, but also the Egyptians know that God, Yahweh, is ultimate and he alone is the saviour. Look at verse 7. Poor old Moses, 80 years of age. I think when I get 80 years of age, there's a lot of things where I think, oh, I just couldn't be bothered. I don't know, I haven't got there yet. I'm only halfway in a bit more. But you're 80 years of age and you're told to go before Pharaoh and do something that's not going to be profitable or it's not going to be um, immediately, obviously profitable. I think it's a good reminder. We, In terms of God's service, we don't retire. We might retire from our work in our particular vocation, but we don't re- retire in serving God. But at this age of 80, when he's called to do this thing that God's told him is not going to have the result that he wants, how do Moses and Aaron respond to this command to go before Pharaoh? Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded them. Would that be your first response? You've done something before, it didn't work out. You're going to do it again. You've been told it's not going to do what you want it to achieve as an outcome, yet they still do exactly what they are told to do. Part of us are probably thinking, you're fruit loops. Why would you do that? Particularly you're 80 years old, why don't you do something, go on a holiday or knit a cardigan? I don't know what you do when you're 80. <laughs> haven't got there. <laughs> so when, when I'm 80, just if you'd like a cardigan, just let me know. I'll, I'll get you one. <laughs> I think there's a lesson to be learned here. 
The lesson to be learnt is that how we respond to God should not be based upon what we get out of it or what it's about me. How we respond to God is whether or not he is worthy of our honour, whether or not we want him to be glorified through that situation. And I think that's why they can, they can faithfully say they did exactly as he was commanded, not because they could think, oh, this is good, I see how this is going to make things sweet and everything's going to be nice, but because they knew that God does all he promises, that somehow, even though they couldn't see it, God is going to use this in a good way, God's good purposes and will will take place. So within these few chapters, twice Moses calls calls Moses to go before Pharaoh and Pharaoh and Moses responds in two different ways. One of them's a bad example and one of them's a good example. We'll start with a bad one. First time God says go to Pharaoh, what does Moses respond with? Excuses. Justification why he shouldn't go before Pharaoh. Now our context is this is the almighty God who said Go to Pharaoh, the same mighty God has promised, I will be with you. Yet Moses still focused on himself and his limitations, like, nah, can't speak, I'm not your man. Now, you've got to sympathise a little bit. If we were in his situation, we'd done something once, it actually worked out to be worse than it was beforehand, we're not naturally going to think, oh yeah, I'd love to do that when we're called to do it again. Understand how we'd feel about it. But I wonder sometimes how often we do the exact same thing. When God brings something to our attention, we come up with our list of excuses and maybe even justify ourselves why that doesn't apply to us. And we could say, I tried trusting Jesus before, but things didn't work out so well. Now, things actually got harder sometimes. I tried trusting him in this area of my life, but two weeks later I'm still struggling with it. Didn't meet my goals. Didn't meet my expectations. Now what that reveals? It reveals either we didn't understand what God's promises are in those areas, or we misinterpreted how they were going to play out. Like we, we redefined them and said, this is the time, but if it doesn't happen, then, then that's not the promise. But if there's anything we learn from not only this passage, but the book of Exodus on the whole, is delay in seeing the fulfilment of God's promises is no way a sign that the promises themselves have failed. Because we're seeing in this chapter, God doesn't go and says, I'm giving them a convincing reason why I should believe me, he just goes back and reminds them what the promise is. Because it hasn't changed. So often we might say, don't give me the promises of God. You don't understand. I've struggled with this for 10 years. Give you a little bit of context. Israel was in Egypt for 400 years. Anyone here struggled with any of their sins for 400 years? If you can, you could could knit five cardigans. Oh, that was poor maths. Sorry. Deary me, I should write maths in my notes if I'm going to pull out that sort of stuff. God doesn't even answer his questions or his excuses. He's done that previously. All he does is remind him what his promises are. Now, the good response, the one that's actually worth following, is then that second interaction. 
God presents exactly the same case. Go before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses and Aaron do exactly what God commanded them. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed about what they're called to do. The only thing that's been changed is how they've responded and probably the reason why they've responded. They have seen that God's promises can be banked on. God's promises are trustworthy and faithful. And even when I can't see how that's going to be for my immediate benefit, that he can be trusted at all times. Because God delivers on all of his promises. And whenever we think that he doesn't, it's either because we've misunderstood what he's promised or we've reinterpreted or given our own definition of what he's promised. One thing I love in the Bible, where you see the words, I will, you look throughout the rest of the Bible, you'll find how God carries out what he says he will do. Because anything God says, I will, you can bank on it 100%. Now, a natural response is to think, I oh, yeah, God's sovereign, God's almighty, he can do all things. And that's, that's one aspect of it, and certainly don't play that down in any way whatsoever. He is more than able to do all that he, that he sets out to achieve. But there's more to it than that. God's own reputation is on the line if he doesn't deliver on his promises. Now the old expression, your word is your bond. In other words, your word is sort of like a guarantee. And if you break that, then everything's undone. Basically, if you carry on and you do what you say you're going to do, will affect ultimately your overall reputation and your standing. And I think that helps put things into context. Next time that we're, we're tempted to doubt the promises of God, not only are we to remind that he is all-powerful, he can actually do all these things, that he is above all authority and rule, but his own reputation's on the line. God is not going to risk his own reputation by changing his mind. He's not going to ruin his name through the dirt by being a God who can't and won't deliver on his promises. Now, you mightn't have thought of it in that way before. As I said, we always think of God's all-powerful, he's sovereign. But if our only thoughts are that he's all-powerful and he's sovereign, in the back of our mind, there will always be that lingering question. What if he changes his mind? What if that's not for me? What if I haven't done enough to get it? God can be depended upon because his own reputation is at stake. He delivers on all of his promises. Sometimes we don't see how that's going to be immediately satisfying or even addressing our situation. Yet like Moses and Aaron, who boldly and faithfully did what they were called to do, not because they could see how it was going to work out, but because they trust their God will deliver on all of their promises and because they know that God will always do things for his glory and he will not run his name through the mud by failing to carry through on what he has promised. So when we're in situations, we don't get the immediate response we want. The answer from Exodus is we keep on trusting because he always does deliver on his promises. Even though the timing might not be what we look for and he always does things for his glory, for his namesake. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm sure every single one of us in this room struggle to trust you at times, including myself. 
we are so quick to view the world through the lens of of our abilities and, and our circumstances or our world's circumstances. Lord, help us to keep our eyes upon you, know, knowing who it is that we belong to, knowing who it is who has declared these, these marvellous and wonderful promises, who is able to do more than we ever ask or imagine, and who, who is willing to stake his very own reputation on the line. God, you are able and you do all you promise. As much as children, we have this expectation that our parents will do everything they say and they are sinful and broken people. How much more, as children of the living almighty God, can we not only expect it, but we can guarantee that you will deliver on every single one of your promises. Help us to have that confidence in our times of struggle because we will struggle. We will doubt and help us to to have that boldness to even bring those difficult, hard questions before you. But as we bring those questions before you, help us to have a heart that trusts, a heart that trusts without seeing how it is you'll, you'll deliver your promises, but a heart that trusts that you are true to everything you say you will be. And we thank you that you are that God whom we can depend upon with whom there is no shadow of changing at all. And we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.